Hey everyone, and welcome back to the podcast where we speak logistics. In part two of our conversation, Craig Fuller and Stephen Dola discuss the speed of freight, challenges in the industry, and the trade war with China. For Dola Global Logistics in Long Beach, California, I'm Wade. This is the podcast, and we speak logistics. What do you think is the most crucial thing that people who are in the freight business or in the international uh, shipping business, whether they be importers or freight forwarders or 3PLs, what is the, like in the next five years, what's the, what's the thing to keep an eye on? What's going to be the most important factor? Well, I think it's, it's, it's sort of consistent and will be consistent to the end of time is that uh-huh. what's happening now with all this digitization uh, is that information, so, so customers are wanting to move things faster. They want to get they want to streamline their supply chains. You mentioned Amazon. Amazon's trying to get freight moved through the supply chain faster, both domestically and internationally. And I think that's true for every single shipper. They also want information flowing between these parties. And so there's a constant drive to better information connecting all these parties, more uh, expedient uh, uh, connectivity. And and I think all of that sort of a macro trend is not going to change. I would also argue that because most of the decisions are being made, if you think of it in the trucking market, you know, by the time you ship a shipment, uh, the time it picks up, that's about just a two-day window. And, and it's getting faster and faster as time goes on, and whether it's air freight or ocean. What's happening is all of these geopolitical events are impacting trade. Uh, all of the uh, market conditional events are impacting trade. Uh, and so you have to have real-time analytics on what's happening. I think that's a trend that's going to continue. Uh, certainly, we're, we're doing our part by, by doing that. And there are other parts of the ecosystem that are bringing better connectivity. And I think, you know, you don't have to go buy our product, which is fine and, 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 and great if, if you don't. But what what is important at the end of the day is that you understand that whether they're shippers or freight forwarders or carriers, is that everyone is, is mutually aligned to bring uh, together information and visibility. And then that visibility uh, push is going to be a permanent uh, fixture of our reality broadly. And the, the, the opportunity is exponential because once you get certain level of visibility, it then builds on itself and requires more visibility. And then ultimately we're going to end up in a, more digitally connected world, hopefully. I mean, assuming there's nothing sort of that breaks that, like geopolitical uh, constructs or, uh, say, a natural disaster. Um, And so as we have a more connected world, then that allows for more efficient processes and for more information flow. And so I think that's where we're headed, is really it's not just about JIT transportation, but it's about JIT connectivity. And I think that's where we're we're ultimately headed. So the idea would be, again, and what you – if not uh, optimistically uh, see for the next few years is pulling together all these separate systems and entities and creating a much more seamless flow of information for the again, the end users and the senders and all the rest of it so that good decisions can be made and visibility can be had and customers can be satisfied. Yeah, and so I think, I mean, it's happening for, across all avenues and spectrums. The shippers are demanding it because they want... Uh, they want better visibility of their freight. They want to make sure that their appointments are registered and on time, and they're putting penalties if you don't. Uh, carriers are are probably the slowest to adapt of any any mode. Yes. Carriers are always Very the slowest true. to adapt. Um, uh, maybe air air may be the biggest 
So they may be the earliest adopter of any sort of technology just because their businesses tend to be, you know, an, air, uh, an airline is far more technology focused just because of the nature of how their businesses work than what the yeah. other modes of traffic are. You, but they're, 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 they're broadly they're high all risk, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, they, I mean, they, they invest in technology, it's just, it's closer to their DNA than, yeah. say, the ship lines, which tend to yeah. be the, the slowest adopters. Yeah, um, I think that but, the ship lines could that, raise a sail, I think they probably would be doing that. So uh. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So, so look, yeah. I, I think all of that's happening. And, and, and so, you know, companies like Amazon and Walmart, and, and, and they're forcing everyone to, to bring information together. And so what they're doing is they're requiring their terrorists to invest in this technology. The government's doing its part. Uh, to have better visibility and tracking of hours and labor and, and all of this, and that's forcing everyone to sort of adopt it. And the, the challenge that I see, and this is really uh, across the board, is I think there's always this sort of resistance or, or, or almost concern of what people are doing with information, and there's this desire of we want it to go back to the old ways. We don't want to be digitized. We don't want to be accountable to these to these digits because it doesn't provide context for us. And I think, I think the challenge is that, the, that this process is inevitable. There is nothing you can do about it. And it's not just, you know, we, we are sort of a secondary benefit to it because we can get context and data, but, but there's a primary benefit to the suppliers in the business because they can be more efficient and have more information and know what's happening. It's more, it's more beneficial to the retailers. Uh, it, it, that visibility actually can bring a substantial amount of benefits over time. Um, and regardless of whether it helps our business or not, it's still going to be an inevitable reality for the way uh, uh, business is changing and, and freight and transportation. I really appreciate about what you're doing because I really see you bringing value. And I think that that, that is, you know, that you're, you're taking and you're trying to bring together all these pieces and, and also helping uh, an industry, which is, uh, historically, like you described, very slow to adopt uh, technology uh, to to get to kind of accelerate that pace before the disruptors come in and just eat everybody's lunch. And I think that that's that's definitely a, a valuable service. So um, from the perspective of yeah, I mean the consumer of it, you know, the disruptors, the challenge for the industry and the incumbents is the disruptors are telling a story that is actually factually correct, which is the industry broadly is slow to adapt technology. Right. And what they found is this, it really resonates with Silicon Valley investors is this idea of disintermediation through technology. And the challenge is that those same disruptors oftentimes don't have the uh, experience in the industry and don't have the sort of base of business to draw. That is both an advantage because they don't have bias on how things used to be. It's also a challenge for them because a lot of freight and freight management, particularly in the non-asset-based, you know, uh, intermediary side of the space, is a lot about exception management, which actually requires people. So it's interesting to watch. And, and look, I'm a big fan of, of, of companies that are doing interesting things. That's why the disruptors are, are really – I'm a fan of them broadly, whether, whether their right. business models are, are – their, their valuations that I can subscribe to or not is, is irrelevant, and I think it's where a lot of people get focused. What, what I think that those companies are doing is pushing the envelope around these factors because they don't have any, they don't have sort of the, the scars of having tried this stuff and it not working and sort of giving up on it or afraid right. to try. And I think you have to give them credit. And I think as an industry, if you're not classified as a disruptor and you sort of 
have to operate the way every other business in America does, which is, which is you have to make a profit, you have to generate revenues, uh, and, and that's how you're valued, then, then you have to look at business and say, I can't, I can't function alone and I can't sit there and stick my head in the, in the sand because if I do, then these disruptors will come in and just completely displace me. And they're going to. That's their goal. And I don't think this yeah. is just Shrinkwitter's uh, creative destruction at its finest. It's just that our industry has historically not had to face uh, what, you know, what often people would describe as interlopers. They haven't had to face these sort of outside companies coming in and disrupting. Um, a lot of times in the past, it sort of ha- you know, there was a lot of discussion around it. The difference this time is that we have the right environment for those conditions to exist, and I would not count any of those companies out, uh, and I would not be surprised if we see over the next couple of decades or even over the next decade, that some of these guys really create a huge amount of scale and end up becoming, achieve their goals. Now, they will burn a lot of capital to do it. They will burn a lot. They will make a lot of mistakes along the way. They will make a lot, and it's easy to sort of point those out. But at the end of the day, there will be a couple of those in each sector that really, really change the way the business is operating. And I don't think you have to go and look at, you know, you can look at what Uber has done in the taxi business. You can look at what Amazon has done in retail. You can look at what the Internet broadly, Google has done to media, or Facebook has done to advertising. Um, and so this is, a, this is a factor that we're all going to live with. I mean, the cable companies, media uh, is being completely displaced by I mean, Netflix has eaten all their launch. And, yeah. and, I, and I think these are just, this is just reality. So. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think I think the, the it's, it's I guess it's 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 the it's the level of complexity that I think is is what you described in terms of like the intermediary area, which is my area, um, that that I don't think that they are completely grasping yet, and that's why a lot of these uh, very um, appealing technology-based companies end up falling down is because they they haven't really grasp the complexity of what they're doing and that need for having experienced people on the ground. But that's just a matter of time. You're right. I mean, it, so if, you, if you're waiting for them just to fail and, and let's see them as a flash in the pan, I think that's, that's the wrong approach. Now, beating, up the, beating them at their own game or, or joining in, or if you can't beat them, join them, whichever uh, analogy you want to use, um, then I think that's, much, that's, that's a much better uh, uh, strategy, I think, in the long run. Yeah, so, that's exactly right. I, I think I, I think the so you have to understand how they work because they've got to go out and build substantial revenue growth. So they tend to go the the really successful ones are going after what I would call high volume, high frequency shippers because they can just get substantial amount of volume from it. You know, they sort of they sort of go and raise capital on the long tail and solve the inefficiencies of the world. But we, the reality of their, their businesses is that the majority of their business is coming from these large high-volume shippers. And the reason that that makes sense for them is they can build a lot of density in their networks and they can operate efficiently. And what we've seen recently is some of those uh, disruptors are starting to put physical infrastructure. You know, they become asset-centric, whether it's drop trailers or warehouses or whatever, um, or consulting services that are attached to their digitization which looks a lot like a, you would say, like a, any of the traditional uh, freight forwarders or any traditional freight brokers. The thing is they understand they have to do that. The problem is that you can't sit there and avoid the reality is that they are thinking every single day about how to disrupt the broader market. 
And if you don't get on board to digitization, you don't get on board to making investments or at least trying to make these investments, then you are going to be displaced. It's inevitable. And unless you have a really small niche that they don't want to uh, come after, I mean, that's actually a really sort of defensible strategy is if you do something that is outside of their niche or outside of their core business for sort of a small niche, the chances of them coming into your market is actually quite small. More on the macro level, and I'm going to, I'll, I'm going to close with this and from my end of it, um, the, I, I like to ask this of, of, of anyone I can get an opinion out of, and you, you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but uh, regarding the trade war, brilliant marksman-like move or wrong-headed, ridiculous <laughs> folly? It's the most absurd. It's the most absurd thing I think I've seen in geopolitics in decades. Uh, is the idea that somehow you're going to bully? You're going to bully. First of all, we're picking. You know, the Mexicans are quite different than the Chinese. The Mexicans are sort of are far more dependent upon uh, the U.S. market, uh, and and the U.S. has a ton of leverage in that relationship that we just don't have with the Chinese. There's, re- there's two reasons for that. One is the Chinese. As a as a society, as in a culture, are willing to play the 50-year, 100-year game. They just <laughs> have a very long-sighted game. And there's another thing culturally that I don't think we. <laughs> I don't why, the other thing, the other thing that that you have to understand about Chinese culture is that there's yeah. there's this idea of losing face. And so uh, what yeah. they don't, what the Chinese don't want to do is be humiliated on a global stage. And the problem is that you know. Our president is is is, is effectively trying is playing into that card, which is making he's looking sort of, you know, he's making these stands of trying to change the way the Chinese work and sort of bully them into uh, to submission. The problem is the Chinese have way too much to lose, both domestically, because they because this is the greatest gift to Chinese nationalism that you could possibly ever give uh, the premier, because what you're doing is your base and, and globally, because what you're doing is you're separating the world between us and them. And the Chinese have had over the last 20 years, have had a strategy of engaging with countries, whether it's Australia or parts of Asia. And they've always been frustrated. The U S just had a more sophisticated and more connected, uh, foreign policy. It was much more sophisticated and provide a lot more to the table. The problem is that, we have sort of said it's us versus them, and we have excluded the Chinese from this conversation. They've been forced to sort of think about their business quite differently. And I think that's a, an enormous mistake, and I think we're going to come back and face this for, for unfortunately, this is going to be many, many decades um, that we're going to be paying the price. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think uh, and when you talk about playing the long game, I, I you know one of the things I, I talked about, it, I think, is uh, – a couple months ago was the fact that uh, China as a society has had a continuous history that's, that's, that's uh, measured in millennia. So, I mean, yep. we're talking about some, you know, a deep history and a deep sense of history. And then again, and they're the same people that made the deals on uh, Hong Kong and Macau, you know, these 99 yep. year leases. And this, again, this is, this is long game, long strategy. And also the fact that they don't have uh, this four year cycle of, of, uh, of political upheaval that we have. They have a very continuous and a very, uh, a very, 
stable. You know, let's not we can get into possibly right. the, the you know the, the geopolitical issues that they have in the in the, in the domestic possibility. But but we're not talking about every four years they could possibly be voted out of office, and that makes a big difference. No, that's in terms right. Of how, yeah, the thing that that also is probably less understood is. The Chinese as a culture, so the Asian cultures don't look at the individual as important as Western societies do. It's a good group. It's a collective. And the, and the yeah. thing is, we have a tendency to think about our own self-interest as, an, as our timeline. As you mentioned, the 99-year deal for Macau and, and Hong Kong, hmm. the Chinese can look at it in terms of centuries because yeah. they don't think of themselves as a single individual. It's what, what does it do for the betterment of everybody? And I think that is a, it's an enormous mistake to sort of underestimate how big of a factor that is. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, you make some important points, especially about uh, how they are culturally. Um, and again, it's just the whole idea of saving face is something that's completely missed in, in um, the current administrations. I kind of like to leave it <laughs> nameless because uh, there's way too much uh, things <laughs> about evoking the, the, the name. I think that's, that's one of the problems. Um, so, just as a final thing, you've got an event coming up in this fall. You want to talk a little bit about that? Just give us a quick plug. Yeah, Chicago Freightways Live. It was formerly called Marketways. We we decided we kept people kept kept saying, "I'm coming to the Freightways. I'm coming to Freightways. Come Freightways," which was really just our conferences. So we have a an event dedicated to uh, technology and innovation and markets uh, in Chicago. Uh, it is on November 12th and 13th at the McCormick Center. It will be fast. It will be LED lit like it was at the last <laughs> conference. Fast cadence, high thinkers. And look, we're hoping to have a really active dialogue and, and create a lot of energy because there's a ton of stuff happening. And I think we're hoping to be a part of that conversation and help uh, bring that conversation together. So you can go to uh, our website, fitways.com, and under events, you'll see uh, that particular event listed, and uh, hopefully we'll have a, a great turnout, which we expect to. We already, I think, up four or five times what we have it in terms of the ticket cadence and what we had the, had the last two two conferences. So that's great. Well, I'm, I'm definitely going to be there, and uh, I'm going to probably bring one or two of my staff with me this time because I think uh, there's just a lot to be gained and a lot to be uh, learned from from these conferences. Um, and you guys do it well. So hey, you know that's the best of both worlds. So, well, that's uh, that's all we have time for today. I really appreciate you uh, coming, Craig Fuller from uh, Freight Waves, um, and we're very excited to see what's happening, what's happening in the future for you, and, uh, and I, again, I'm looking forward to Chicago. All right. Good. I look forward to seeing you there, and uh, hope to talk soon. Great. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to the podcast where we speak logistics. Please be sure to subscribe and share our podcast and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. For Nidola Global Logistics in Long Beach, California, I'm Wade, this is the podcast, and we speak logistics.